to another episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Farrell, and I'm joined here today by our newly elected treasurer, Nick Kodowski. How are you doing today, Nick? I'm doing well. How are you, Garrett? I'm great. And we are joined by a very special guest today, Miss Anna Futrell, who is the executive director of the McLennan County CASA program. How are you doing today, Anna? I'm good. How are you guys? Good. Thank good. you for being here today. No problem. Well, um, we'll go ahead and start off with you just sort of telling your story, how you became the executive director of CASA in McLennan County, and um, go from there. Okay, sure. Uh, my name's Anna, like you said. I, I'm a Baylor grad in 2008 and actually went to Baylor for accounting and have uh, two degrees in accounting and taxation. I'm a CPA and worked in public accounting for about 10 years before I hopped into the nonprofit scene, so that might sound kind of like a weird disconnect in <laughs> career moves, uh, but the personal tie and the reason that I uh, jumped into this foster care nonprofit specifically is that my husband and I, we were foster parents for a few years, uh, 2014 through 2016, and then adopted our three kids in 2016. And so uh, just had a really really a heart for this type of work. And in my executive director role, some of those skills from the business world do translate because it's basically kind of a CEO role just in the nonprofit setting. So uh, yeah, that's that's how I got here. I joined CASA in 2017 and we've had a lot of changes since. We've grown. Uh, we have uh, have a, a new facility that we moved into in 2019 that we renovated. So that was an exciting time. And Made it through COVID with virtual advocacy, which is not ideal uh, for dealing with kids and families on Zoom, but we did our best. Did you did you start as a uh, advocate or a supervisor or sort of? No, I just came in as staff mm -hmm. um, as the executive director. I did serve on the board for a short time prior to that, okay. uh, but when it looked like there was going to be a change of leadership, I resigned from the board because I was discerning and deciding if I wanted to throw my hat in that ring. And so then I came in as staff. Awesome. And um, for those that don't know, can you kind of explain the CASA program and um, what it all sort of entails? Yeah, sure thing. Um, the, the short summary to begin with is CASA stands for Court Appointed Special Advocates. And uh, we recruit volunteers that are then appointed by a judge to serve as the guardian ad litem for kids that are in foster care. And so the, our volunteers' job ultimately is to advocate for the best interest of these kids in the court. Uh, and so we train our volunteers, we have good robust training and screening, and then they are matched with an advocate supervisor who is a staff member. Uh, because our volunteers come from all walks of life, uh, they are not necessarily any type of social worker or child welfare expert. Um, and so we have our full-time staff that are working in this field full-time and they serve as guidance and support, task planning, you know, debriefs, some venting sometimes uh, to make sure that our advocacy is on track for these kids. Uh, CASA is statewide in Texas and almost nationwide. It's in 49 states. North Dakota does not have CASA for some reason. Uh, and so within Texas, each CASA program stands alone as its own nonprofit and serves a certain geographical area. So here in Waco, our program serves McLennan County. Um, our local programs are the ones that are really the boots on the ground with the volunteers and the advocacy. 
we have Texas CASA, which is sort of a state-level support and association membership entity. And they provide a lot of training and support and compliance measures and um, some pass-through funding as well. And then the national level is obviously much bigger. So that's setting CASA standards and, um, you know, branding and marketing and recruitment purposes and things like that. Uh, Our program here used to be a program of the Advocacy Center for Crime Victims and Children and uh, became our own nonprofit in 2012 and branched out in a positive manner to just have good standing in the community and, um, you know, recruit volunteers and that type of thing. So then I joined in 2017, like I mentioned, and uh, here we are. So uh, our volunteers, as I mentioned, come from all walks of life, and we just have some basic requirements. You have to be over age 21, pass background checks, complete our screening and training, and um, we look for folks that kind of want that depth of relationship with a child or children and have some time to give. A case can last up to a year and some of them longer. We ask advocates to commit to the life of the case. The state of Texas has a year to make a decision in the courts as to the parental rights of the parents in the case, whether the children can safely return home. Um, But once that's been decided, if they cannot return home, then sometimes the case will move on longer than that with trying to find permanency for those children. So those are kind of some of the aspects of the volunteer work that we do. Do you mind uh, explaining the difference or your um, sort of interaction with CPS? And um, when I first looked into becoming a CASA volunteer, I was a little bit confused on what CPS does and what CASA does. Um, Do you mind just explaining? Sure thing. Yeah, there are multiple professionals on each of these cases and they all kind of have their different different roles. So the CPS caseworker is tasked with kind of the day-to-day case management and placement oversight of these kids. They each of those individuals will have a caseload of a certain number of kids. So when children are removed and placed in foster care because of abuse or neglect, the state of Texas becomes temporary managing conservator. So TMC, which is a bunch of words that mean Texas is their parent for a minute. So DFPS is Department of Family Protective Services. CPS, as you mentioned, is Child Protective Services within that. So CPS will assign a caseworker and supervisor to that case. Um, They check up on the child at least monthly. They monitor some education requirements, safety of the kids, and that caseworker will also work with the parents and family of that child on a service plan. So if a child is removed, something went wrong to reach this point, so they'll work with the family and the parents to try to remedy whatever that was. It looks different for different families. For some, it's is it substance abuse issues? Is there you know an issue of neglect or parenting classes needed? Um, some there may be anger management. Uh, there may be other uh, items at play. Safe and stable housing is a, a big factor in these cases, and just being able to provide for these kids and keep them safe. So each family is given that service plan, and then that caseworker is tasked with kind of managing and monitoring. How is this family moving through that service plan uh, in the interest of looking at safety for kids? So that's CPS. CASA 
is the guardian ad litem for the children. And while we do some of those same tasks, like meeting with the child, meeting with the family, um, you know, checking up on the placement for safety, things like that, it is a different role in that the caseworker is more ongoing case management of a little bit bigger picture and has the power to kind of make some decisions and recommendations related to certain things. The CASA, as guardian ad litem, the role boils down to advocating for the best interest of these kids. In some situations, that may be just an item in the moment, all the way up to the very biggest picture of can they return home safely. Um, The CASA is a volunteer, so that is a difference versus caseworkers are are paid. Um, And there can be some turnover of caseworkers, and that's just sort of a fact of of that climate. And we hope at least that the CASA volunteers are a a steady and constant individual across the whole case. Uh, We do write court reports and provide written and oral reports to the court and to the judge. And she reads those and really looks at it as kind of a a clear, informed, unbiased report of the situation and and recommendations for this child. So I I listened in on some uh, uh, permanency hearings the other day. Um, Great. Do you mind describing or like sort of going up because I was a little bit confused on what the the hearing process is. Sure, sure. I can kind of give an overview. So. The case begins with an investigation and, you know, a report and an investigation. If it is determined that a removal is needed, there will be a 262 hearing about two, within two weeks of that happening. Um, it can be sooner if it's a really an emergency situation or, you know, within those two weeks is my understanding. That is to, you know, put initial court orders in place for removal and get everything set with initial placement, um, assign attorneys to the child and to the parents in the case, appoint CASA if the judge is going to appoint CASA, and get everything going. Um, There's a status hearing about three months later that's essentially a check-in. How's everything going? Typically, not many actual decisions or changes are made at that point if things are going kind of according to plan. And then there is a uh, first permanency hearing about six months into the case, which if they're on the regular timeline, that's essentially halfway. And then there can be a second permanency hearing if needed at about nine months. Sometimes if things have really wrapped up, that's the final hearing, or it can be. Um, But if not, if more time is needed, then there can be a final hearing more around a year. The judge can grant an extension in the case of about six months. We saw a lot of that across COVID just because everything (laughs) went sideways. Um, And then uh, that that would extend it. After that, if a child is still in foster care, meaning it was determined they couldn't return home safely to their family of origin, but another permanency option hasn't been found, they'll have permanency review hearings periodically for those children, just to make sure nothing's falling through the cracks, get everybody together, and uh, make sure that things are moving forward for that child. Anytime across the case, a special hearing can be called by the attorneys um, or the judge themselves if they need that. 
Um, the children can meet with the judge periodically. That can be set up. Uh, that's not a hearing. That's just a meeting between the judge and the child. And uh, can call placement review hearings as well. If a child's placed uh, you know, with a foster family or relative and something's going wrong with that or it's not the best place for that child or not safe, they can real quick call placement review hearing and address that situation individually. Um, the, you talked a little bit about the family service plans. Um, those are set by CPS, and then does CASA volunteers have recommendations that go into that as well? That is set by CPS, just with input of best practices that kind of jive with what is the situation that brought everybody here. Um, and then that plan is made in order of the court, essentially. Um, CASA doesn't have a role in forming that family plan of service since our focus is really more on the child or sibling group themselves but nevertheless as everybody moves forward through that plan if you know casa has questions or comments or you know ideas for resources then that is welcome so um going along the idea of sort of like the trauma-informed questioning um in that perspective, it seems to be really prevalent in the CASA curriculum. How has that um, involved, evolved over time? Well, with children that are in these situations, simply being removed from their home is trauma, regardless of what brought that on. So the removal itself is trauma add in the potential for actual abuse, neglect, etc., additional trauma, and then they're thrown into a foster care system that can be chaotic for them and placement changes and such. So that trauma can basically multiply over time. Um, there has been an increased focus from what I have seen in my tenure with the trauma-informed care approach both to the children and to the parents and families in these cases, and even the, the placements, whether that's foster care, you know, foster parents that are unrelated or relative caregivers, of just really trying to ensure that everyone understands that fact that these kids are coming into care traumatized and their experience in care can sometimes make that a little worse or at least a little more complicated. And so just trying to really ensure that everybody in the picture has a sense of that, that doesn't mean that all those folks are to the level of, you know, licensed professional therapists or something that have all this huge toolbox of ways to, to handle that, but everyone at least has that context. Um, that has definitely become more prevalent. And um, our local judge uh, encourages the various professionals and players, even attorneys, to seek out some trauma-informed care training that is available to various uh, folks even locally and that can inform their work if it's an attorney their work for their client or if it's CASA or CPS or work with these children and families. So sort of going along with that um, line of thought, um, both Rhonda who I've done my training with so mm -hmm. far and um, Rolanda have mentioned like temperature checks as far as um, advocates go, you know, the check in like, oh, how are you doing today? You know, because the circumstances that surround a lot of these cases seem very, they're very serious and very um, traumatic, both to the, you know, parties involved and for people looking out from the inside. 
what advice for people that might be interested in, in becoming an advocate would you give um, around the, that sort of? Yeah, we try to be, we try to hit middle ground when we are talking to interested volunteers that are thinking of becoming a CASA volunteer because we want to be realistic to them and what this is and what this entails but also not just scare them away right off the bat. And so, because the reality is there are so many wonderful people in our community that can absolutely do this role. They can, and we have the support here in our organization to to help them. Um, so we try to give adequate information in kind of some of our volunteer recruiting and things like that of what, what this involves and what it takes. Um, but also we we try not to pull punches because this is heavy work. I mean, foster care is complex. Um, what these kids are dealing with is tough. Uh, some a little more than the others. And so we we do try to really prepare our advocates well across training and then support them well once they're in this volunteer role and working with these kids. That, you know, you kind of mentioned that the temperature checks, that can be sort of just debrief conversations with that advocate supervisor on our staff that can be you know hey we're a safe place to just kind of vent about something that happened or talk it through because it it can be heavy and ultimately though we try to remind our volunteers and encourage them that they are absolutely making a difference in the life of a child right it seems it seems like the ends are very rewarding um what what is your uh what would you say that's the most rewarding experience that you've you've come out you've had come out um see i'm not directly in the direct service work with the children but my staff are here on our team and and i get to know some of the volunteers as they come through or when they're in our building um i think some of the most rewarding feedback so to speak i've heard from kids is that they recognize that the casa is the only adult on the scene that is not paid to be there and they, they notice that and tell us even sometimes that that is meaningful to them to have somebody that's there because they want to be in that spot um, with these kids. And so that definitely is some meaningful feedback. And there are situations where something is complicated or has gone sideways. And our CASA, because they have one case at a time, versus the other professionals have lots of cases that they're serving, whether that's caseworkers or attorneys, our CASAs are really able to have that depth of focus that there are some situations that, like I said, kind of get complicated or weird, that it's the CASA that is able to get to the bottom of something and actually have a good understanding of what this child needs. Right. I think uh, listening in on permanency hearings the other day really... I mean, there was there was probably you know ten people on the on the Zoom call, mm-hmm. and it it just was good to hear so many people trying to get to the right solution, yeah. especially attorney for mom, attorney for dad, mom and dad, and everybody's trying to figure it out. Yeah, there's and, lots of people. <laughs> yeah, lots of people. Almost overwhelming amount yes. of people uh, trying to sort through who's who. Yes. Um, but uh, Garrett. Um, yeah, so I think kind of switching over to becoming cost advocate and mm-hmm. how law students and anybody else who may be listening to the podcast um, can get involved. What is sort of the application process, um, the training that goes into it, and the commitment for um, 
a prospective uh, CASA volunteer. Yeah, absolutely. So just a reminder that CASA is bigger than just here in Waco. So if you're listening elsewhere um, in Texas, you can go to becomeacasa.org and that will summarize some of the volunteer requirements and also point you per your zip code to where your local CASA program is, um, including right here in Waco. So that's a way to find, you know, where you could plug in and get some more information as well. If you want to follow our social media that's at Casa McLennan and that can give you a little more information. You know, I mentioned some of the very basics of over age 21, past background checks, do our training, etc. Um, but we do need folks that have, you know, a little bit of time to give, a willingness to have a volunteer role that has that longevity of relationship and um, kind of commit to that life of the case, basically. And our volunteers do end up often traveling a little bit to go see these kids because only about half of the kids in foster care in McLennan County actually reside here, either with relatives or foster placements. The rest of them, it's a matter of where is there an appropriate home for them to be placed. Um, Maybe it's an aunt and uncle or grandma that's in Dallas. That's great for them to be with family. Um, Or maybe it's a foster home or some in residential facilities elsewhere. So depending on the case assignment, we kind of map that out with our volunteers of our advocacy following that child wherever they might end up placed. Um, You are supported and matched up with an advocate supervisor. And then uh, as far as kind of then the the week-to-week duties, um, there's a lot of different contacts, of course, with the child and their siblings, if there are some siblings, with the parents and family of this child, the other professionals, the placement where they live, you know, teacher, therapist, kind of whoever's at play and uh, meaningful to this child's situation. And then pulling all that information together into a court report uh, for each of those hearings that we talked about. And when it comes to Baylor Law students, we have several on our roster of volunteers at any time. And being students, we kind of get it that there's a window where they can, you know, work a case and complete a commitment. And then you're on to graduation and your new career and things like that. So we kind of try to keep uh, information out there in law school to get get a new set of students if those um, complete their commitment. We love it when volunteers can stay on and they can maybe close out one case and then take another and then another. We have a few volunteers that have been with us for more than five years now and worked multiple cases during that time. So that's not doable for everybody, but um, when we have folks that are able to do that, then that's that's absolutely great because they've kind of already got context for what this involves and they can jump right in for the next set of kids. Um, there's throughout the training. There's quite a bit of um, discussion about bias mm-hmm. and the biases that you come into, especially when they're, you're doing visits. Um, the the standard that they use is the minimum sufficient level of care. Yes. Uh, I believe. Uh-huh. Um, do you mind just kind of expanding on that a little bit? Um, yeah, it can be tricky for some of our volunteers that have you know themselves grown up with a healthy childhood, healthy parents or grandparents have had what they need for their whole life um, to then come in and and deal with some of these families and interact with families that may not have had that as even these parents grew up. There's some um, matters of generational cycles or socioeconomic considerations that some of these parents 
they're they're not trying to be bad parents they just don't know how to be good parents um and some individuals though poverty is not an immediate reason for removal of a child can be a contributing factor just some other things can you know come together and cause a family situation to to um kind of crash and burn into neglect or abuse or things like that and so our volunteers, we do have to train on that and work with them to a degree at times because they may be going into a home, for example, that is very small, maybe a bit dirty. There's not a ton of healthy food, but there's food. Um, not a lot of extra money for the kids to do a lot of activities or have a lot of things. Um, that may still be a safe and stable home that meets that minimum sufficient level of care that you mentioned and is appropriate for that child and is with family. Um, versus sometimes there may be, you know, a licensed foster family that's middle class and has set up with everything they need to take care of a child and provide activities. And we really have to reason through children belong with their families. And as long as they are safe and their caregiver can provide their basic needs, then they belong with families. Um, there's also an angle of disproportionality in foster care uh, regarding race, that children of color are overrepresented in the foster care system compared to the regular child population. And so that can be a factor uh, to kind of wrestle with at times. But overall, we, we really try through our training and our support of volunteers to address those type of issues on really a case-by-case and family-by-family basis because no situation is the same. So uh, to sort of wrap up here, um, you want to talk a little bit about the impact that you've seen that the on the kids um, through the CASA program and um, maybe some good stories to kind of help people uh, yeah. be a little bit more motivated <laughs> and uh, want to participate as a volunteer. Sure. We, in our staff meetings or our team meetings, we kind of have a part of our meetings where we we say, does anyone have an advocacy win? That can be teeny little things that are meaningful ultimately for a child all the way up to big decisions in the court. And so we've had some of those, you know, that maybe it's a small thing like the CASA has been the one to pinpoint, oh, this child was moved from this foster home to this foster home. Their bike is still at the old foster home but that is meaningful for this child and the CASA can try to make it happen that this bike somehow gets over there. It's just a bike to a lot of people, but for that child who maybe is in, you know, in the throes of this move, having something like that that's consistent um, can be really helpful. So that's kind of one of those examples that's like, oh, that's a little thing, but it could be meaningful for that child. We have also had situations where CASA has been able to identify some needs of a child that are, you know, maybe physical needs for clothing or something like that. And while we provide advocacy, we don't provide stuff. We do maintain a little bit of our funding to where we can have kind of less red tape than some others and really just jump in that, oh, this young lady needs a prom dress. We're going to make that happen. Um, whether it's truly needs or some of those normalcy needs for children, that's a big focus in foster care right now. Um, we had a grandma take in her four-year-old granddaughter who was very small physically for her age and had had so much trauma that she, the granddaughter just 
had these raging crying fits but rocking her holding her and rocking her would calm her well grandma asked casa can you help me just get a good rocking chair and we were able to make that happen it's more than just a chair because it's addressing trauma and providing a therapeutic you know caring setting for this young girl to be able to calm and so her um, behaviors in that regard have much improved just because we were able to see that need and jump in Um, all the way up to frankly life-altering decisions made by the court our judge really does read our CASA's court reports and hears oral testimony when that is part of the hearing and there have been some situations where it was truly down to the line of can and should this child go home to their family of origin and is that safe we have had situations on one hand where casa had really done the due diligence to learn this situation and get to know this family and we were able to advocate for yes this child belongs back in this home Um, And then even on the flip side, we've had situations where, unfortunately, that wasn't the case. And we were able to really take that deep dive and gain enough information to see we believe this child would be unsafe if they did return home. And the judge values our uh, input and our recommendations in that regard. Sort of, uh, you you mentioned the the rocking chair, and I think mm-hmm. that that uh, that reminded me of uh, during my tr- first week of training. I think Rhonda asked a question like, if a, if a kid just had surgery, you know, on their mouth or something, and you know, they 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 need a milkshake or something, would you would you go like buy them a milkshake? And my instinct was that seems a little bit inappropriate, but at thinking about it as the best interest of the child like mm-hmm. maybe that I mean that's that's the right thing to do so throughout train the training process has been great I'm on week five now okay and uh like I've learned more than I you know possibly could have imagined throughout that time to sort of like cast aside some of my prior notions mm-hmm. of what it meant to be an advocate yeah like. and we also kind of say i mean it's even in our mission statement that these volunteers are advocating for the child in the court and in the community you know so is that an educational perspective working with the school is that just at, at times that's our volunteers taking them for an ice cream or mm-hmm. a movie you know we have some ability for some of that just fun outing type of stuff too and that is what ultimately builds trust as well between the child and the advocate. You know, we're realistic that we're another new face in the picture when we get appointed. And so we kind of take some time and not just jump in immediately with some of these hard-hitting questions. You know, do you feel safe with mom and dad? Where do you want to live? You know, we kind of work up to that. Um, But that relationship is the foundation for that trust that then these kids can really open up. Do you think that, um, I mean, that obviously applies to the parents as well. Do you think the parents have a, um, I mean, CPS, obviously, if they're, if the child's being removed, they're, they might have an adverse, you know, sort of, uh, mm-hmm. understanding of CPS and yeah. CASA is there also. Do you, do you find that, um, parents tend to 
gain trust over time as far as... We have seen that. I mean, every single person is different and every case is different. Um, We have some parents that just do not engage uh, and we have others that absolutely work their hardest to work through their plan and work with everyone involved. We have seen that to a degree that because CASA is, at least in optics, more neutral... You know, we are not the state of Texas. We are a community nonprofit, for example. There are some of those differences that, you know, CPS is working for safety for children and, you know, cohesive families as well. But we do understand that, like you just said, if parents have had their children removed, CASA is not the one that removed mm-hmm. them. It's CPS. And so there can be a different, um, different view of CASA that can sometimes be a little more positive. Mm-hmm. You got anything else? Well, this has been a great episode, and um, thank you very much for your thank time you. today. And um, for those of you that are interested, the website to apply is becomeacasa.org. Mm-hmm. And um, this has been another episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. Uh, we'll catch you next time. <laughs>